1: Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Catherine Young. She's Professor Emerita at the School of Religious Studies at McGill University in Canada. Uh, we'll be talking about her brand new 2021 publication, Turbulent Transformations, Non-Brahman Sri Vaishnavas on Religion, Caste and Politics in Tamil Nadu. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, your um, subtitle is pretty descriptive and apt, I'd say. Uh, but maybe tell us a little bit. Uh, well, before we get into the lay of the land, tell us about how this project came about. I know you made a note in your dedication, but how, how did this come about for you?
0: Well, as a scholar of Sri Vaishnavism, I was always interested in the fact that they had a theology of inclusiveness, all castes, Dalits women, and yet over history, we're never too sure how much of that was social reality. And we never heard from non-Brahmin voices. This is largely a Brahmanical intellectual tradition with all the texts written and interpreted by Brahmins, except for the early Tamil poetry, which was from the 7th to the ninth century, which was by... uh, Devotees belonging to different castes—that's the inclusive part. So that, you know, really made me wonder: what, do, how do Sri Vaishnavas, uh, who are non-Brahmins, view this tradition? How do they participate in it? The leadership roles were always in Brahmin hands—the acharyas, in the sense of gurus, the or intellectual leaders, the um, ascetics. Uh, the priests, the chanters. So if this is an inclusive tradition, what happened when non-Brahmin started to develop um, an awakening during the non-Brahmin movement that began in colonial times? And as they came to uh, an awakening over issues of social justice, what made them think about their tradition? How do they then interpret it? Interpret it. What did that inclusiveness mean? And that was one starting point. Um, the other is that there was a major <clears throat> conference in 2007, where for the very first time, uh, Dr. KKA Venkatachari, uh, whom I've worked with for a number of years, brought together non-Brahmin intellectuals, and leaders of the community at the University of Madras to give them really the first public academic platform to discuss their views as non-Brahmin Sri Vaishnavas. And from that, then I began to meet people and the interview network started.
1: So... Speaking of interviews, say a word about uh, your data, the method. Uh, um, the, how many interviews were there? How did you go about interviews? Tell us a bit about that.
0: Okay. Well, I think all together, because I interviewed mainly non brahmins but I also interviewed Brahmin leaders uh, to get their take on this uh, subject. And uh, I would call these uh, oral histories, because they open up to how people actually remember or experience going through a particular historical period. Um, So from oral histories, I then would call these semi-structured interviews. Sometimes they opened up. Uh, Sometimes I had just one interview with someone because I had to travel a lot, sometimes out to remote villages or pilgrimage places. Sometimes there were several interviews because I could go back. And on several occasions, I had someone with me whom I was interviewing, but was also uh, helping me as we got out into the villages and so forth. In fact, there was one trip that went on for two weeks with uh, Devesh Sonaji, and uh, B.M. Sundaram. And then I could interview Sundaram for almost two weeks as we bumped around the the back roads in southern Tamil Nadu. So it's got some variety to it.
1: What would you say is the main takeaway uh, of the book?
0: Well, the main takeaway, I think, is that there's just a lot of new content uh, because of the focus on non-Brahmin Sri Vaishnavas, Uh, Whereas scholars of South Indian Shaivism uh, have a lot of uh, new scholarly work and Christianity in the colonial period, Uh, the Sri Vaishnavas from the colonial period to now, uh, and especially the non brahmins are largely undocumented. Another takeaway, I think, is I've been told, I'm too close to the manuscript to make a judgment call, but I've been told it's a really good read. That, it's, uh, that, the, it's that the stories uh, come from the heart. They, they're, very, uh, they're very specific. They have lots of different emotional tones and insights. And one person even said it almost reads like a novel. So if it's just a read, I think that one might be a takeaway. If you're a teacher, I think there's a lot in this uh, book because it's got these, uh, these graphic stories. And I think it moves to where students would like to enter uh, understanding another religious tradition or another culture through the level of story, but through the issues that are of such interest to students today, such as, such as uh, social justice, women, um, democracy, politics, cast you move in with those uh, those uh, issues of, of interest and then i always tried to build the context around this so whenever somebody uh, in the interview mentioned a name or an event i would go back and do the the research around that so that gradually the larger picture built up from the specific interview to you know, the idea of the non-Brahmin movement or Dravidian parties, uh, what happens to to women? Uh, can they be a priest? Uh, so gradually, I build this out to a, a more general level.
1: Well, I, I certainly would agree that it's a very engaging read, uh, particularly for an academic book. Um, well. I have a bit of a bias because I love narrative. I love stories. I love life stories. Um, but yes, you, the, 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 the approach of um, having these, these personal histories as a sort of a people into this world, I think it's, it's rich and it's engaging, it's enticing. So I would agree with that. Um, so tell us about this. Tell us about non Brahmin priests. Or uh, is, is that a, a contradiction in Hinduism or Sri you know, What's happening here? What's going on?
0: Well, that's a really big topic. I mean, I think there have always been non brahmin priests because we know there are little uh, roadside shrines and there are, there are village temples, and sometimes those temples are caste-oriented. Uh, they are Dalit temples. There are you know, temples in the agricultural uh, areas with agricultural castes involved. So it's not that there's never been non brahmin priests. But we certainly know that uh, Tamil Nadu has some of the huge, famous uh, temples in India, and they have been Brahmin-dominated. So in the Sri Vaishnava tradition, these major ones are called Divyadeshas, and there are about 96 of them in South India, 108, the sacred number altogether, and they're Brahmin-dominated so that the priests for many centuries have been Brahmin priests. Now the issue is that with the non-Brahmin movement in the colonial period leading into the constitution and the idea that that the constitution says that the government can uh, interfere, so to speak, in religion for social reform, the temple entry acts of allowing Dalits into the temples being, of course, uh, one of the major ones. But... This also raises, uh, if there is to be equality, why are there only Brahmin priests in these big temples and non brahmins allowed only in minor ones, so to speak? As a result, uh, Periyar, who was one of the the famous leaders, sometimes called the father of their Founder of the Dravidian movement uh, from early times in the, in the colonial period started to argue that there should be uh, non-brahmin priests in any temple. And that uh, became part of the DMK, uh, which is one of the major Dravidian parties that just won the uh, state elections this past uh, April. So the DMK has always had this interest in increasing the priesthood. And they do this, uh, I think it was Karuna Nidhi in 1970 for the first time, made this a government uh, platform, and again in 2006. And in 2006, he started to open schools, the government, he was then the, the chief minister, opened schools to train non Brahmins in, in the Agamas, which are the ritual texts. So, as I was doing my interviews there in Tripl- Triplicane in Chennai, there was one of these non Brahmin schools, and I was interviewing the, uh, the teacher. For the teaching of the Tamil hymns, the 4,000 verses, which is one of the requisites, along with the study of the agamas and the rituals, to be a priest in in one of these Sri Vaishnava temples. And the villagers, uh, there were village boys who came and they were gradually memorizing their hymns. Suddenly that school was stopped and nobody could tell me why, you know, just shut down. It wasn't there anymore. And I came to learn, well, it was because the case was going to the Supreme Court. And that Supreme Court judgment finally came out in 2015. Very important uh, um, case for, for religion. And they, the, that court case said the definition of Hindu is too broad. You know, if you're saying anybody can be a any Hindu can be a priest, that definition of Hindu is too broad. They also said the definition of Vaishnava or Shaiva is too broad because underneath those nomenclatures or classifications, there are a number of of sampradayas. So Sri Vaishnavism would be a Sampradaya. Shaiva Siddhanta would be a Sampradaya. And those have their own traditions. And therefore, the court seemed to honor precedent by saying that you had to, uh, uh, in a sense, follow the denomination and be a person who had the, the requisites. And if the denomination's the agamas did not say uh, that you specifically had to be of a Brahmin caste, then it was considered open. Now, what I found was that in point of fact, uh, the only ones who ever became those those Brahmin priests uh, following the agamas were always a certain sub-endogamous sub, sub, uh, caste of, of Brahmins. So, the court ruled on a technicality. They didn't see, uh, you know, only Brahmins in writing, but they didn't take into consideration, at least on the Sri Vaishnava side of things, that this still really precluded non-Brahmans from, from being trained in the agamas to give them the legit- legitimacy. <laughs> and I'll finish the story. Sorry, it got to be quite long. Uh, but uh, this... At uh, last election, which I followed very closely, um, once again it was the it, it, this time it was the DMK who came into power, and that was following the Karuna Nidhi uh, tradition that any non-Brahmin uh, Hindu non-Brahmin with the requisite uh, education and training uh, could be a priest, and uh, when the DMK won. Just about six weeks ago in uh, in August, uh, uh, M.K. Stalin, who is now the chief minister, leader of the DMK, he reinstituted the idea of schools to train non-Brahmin priests in the Agamas. And then there was a reaction that went through social media and we find the priests, uh, the Brahmin priests started to react against that, and they sent an uh, an order to the Madras uh, court. And now the court has uh, caused this stay in in these non-Brahmin schools. So that brings us right up to to this past month that there's a struggle going on uh, over this issue. And different states in India have done it in different ways. Uh, One can compare this to Kerala, Um, but uh, uh, it's uh, and one other interesting point here, and that is that I think it was the BJP and the RSS moved in behind the uh, uh, maintenance of Brahmin priests in these major temples, even though on other fronts during that election, they were talking about, you know, uh, equality and, and so forth.
1: Fascinating, fascinating topic. So underscore for us what you allude to in the very title of the book, Turbulent Transformations. What is this turbulence uh, about which you speak? What's it like?
0: Well, I think if you take a, because I'm a historian of religions by by training, if, if, and I tend to take a historical perspective when you look at the early modern period, there was very, very low literacy for almost all non-Brahmin castes, even the the elite ones of the time. Um, there was very little education. There was very little access to government jobs during the colonial period. Uh, there was still slavery around, uh, despite the. fact that the the Brits were rationalizing the Raj on the the basis of social justice, uh, the agricultural workers in the terrible straits, often with indentured labor. So if you go from those markers into today, uh, and I'm going to skip a lot here, but what I found with my interviews, first of all, I realized I was interviewing what the government sometimes calls the creamy layer. Now, <laughs> it's an odd term, but what they mean by that is that with each caste, thanks to the reservations that opened up uh, education and the reservations in public schools and public domain jobs, uh, as all these things opened up, many uh, people be- became very successful. So each caste has its creamy layer. And the people I were interviewing, I mean, even with the Dalits, there were government, good government jobs and just building beautiful uh, homes. There were lawyers, there were physicians, there, uh, you know, you go the gamut of the modern uh, professions. And uh, if you think how... Uh, The majority of the population is the, you know, the Brahmins are only 3%. So if you go from everybody else in that colonial period uh, uh, of discrimination and lack of opportunity to your creamy layer, then that's a huge change. And as I got into the interviews with each person, you know, sometimes they talked about how they were so excited about the DMK or the AIA DMK. Uh, But then when they got inside, they found there was hypocrisy, partially because the DMK uh, claimed that atheism and rationalism and progressive social values, so to speak. Uh, And uh, that was extremely attractive. But because they were atheists, and these people had usually come out of already... uh, Uh, initiated Sri Vaishnava families. Uh, This was a big turbulence. Personal, coming in, going out, what does identity mean? And then gradually, especially thanks to uh, the advent of Tamil education, they moved out to wider and wider spheres and opportunities and into roles of leadership. So I would say that adds up to to turbulence. We're not talking about, although there certainly are some cases, especially on the Dalit side, we're not talking about turbulence as violence here. We're talking turbulence as personal, caste, uh, social identity.
1: What, if anything, really surprised you about this work? What did you perhaps discover that, that was a bit unexpected or perhaps conversely, it was very much uh, as you expected it would go. It's an open-ended question, but what, 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 what stayed with you about this work and this research?
0: Well, I certainly didn't expect anything because I didn't know anything at that point. You know, I, I knew my Sri Vaishnavism. I knew my South Indian uh, history in, in many ways. But I'd never had this kind of interaction. And I basically, had would usually been in Brahmanical circles. So there was no exterior expectation. What struck me the most was how honest everybody was with me. Now, I'm sure there are things that were held back, but I didn't get the sense that people were filtering their experiences and their thoughts to make an impression. I think on the topic of... Politics, probably occasionally some, some things were held back. That was a more uncomfortable topic for people to, to speak about. But, you know, if their families have been Congress uh, people, they talked with, you know happily about that. But I, I, th- this, I think that's what makes the story so engaging and intriguing is it comes from the heart in, a, in an unfiltered way. I thought that was my, in fact, it was so extreme with one person. I said, you know, I think you've told me more than you really should. Is there anything you want to, uh, you know, eliminate? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so
1: that very quality, I think, is what contributes to a point you made earlier uh, on behalf of one of your uh, readers or reviewers that that real raw, personal storytelling it's sentient and people respond to it and so reading that in an academic context right it's, it, it makes it all the more gripping and real so it's, it really is the stories the, the stories that you've allowed to speak for themselves themselves in addition to the the theoretical story you're telling the socio-political story you're telling I, in, in my view that really is the, the richness of the way the book is is uh presented
0: well, but, I mean, I had to experiment a bit first to decide how to do this book because you could start off with a t- general discussion of caste and have some quotes and some, you know, conclusions. But I did decide to f- to flip it around uh, and to also talk about the context of how I met somebody and you know allow a bit of uh, chit chat level around around the the context. And I did have one academic issue. I have to admit doing this. Sometimes things people were telling me uh, about Sri Vaishnavism did not match up to my knowledge of Sri Vaishnavism, which is Um, text-based. So I thought, well, I can't get into a debate here I'm trying to you know, give them their voice. And I can't say, no, no, no. I think really, you know, this uh, 16th century figure said this. Or I think this story came from here rather than there. So I kept all of that apart. And, and uh, later, if there was really a, a, an academic issue that I thought needed clarification i would bring it into another chapter of the book without people's names mentioned and then take it up in a more general or theoretical way and hope that people you know can move from one part of the book to another and make that link if they're interested uh-
1: if only people would organize their beliefs so as to fit into academic theories. (laughs) What a a neater endeavor this would be. Um, Was there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on today?
0: Oh, well, I guess I could touch on the the women's issue, uh, which I found interesting because one of the very first reviewers of the book noticed, and I have to be honest here, that there wasn't a a lot of... uh, A lot of, there weren't many interviews uh, by women. And uh, that was after my many research trips. Um, They went on for about 10 years. Uh, After the research grant had dried up and the research trips were over and the book was already too big. uh, And there was just no way I could go back and fill in that. But it was embarrassing for me because I've always been, one of my fields has been women or gender and religion. Uh, especially in South Indian Sri Vaishnavism. So I decided, well, let me at least do what I can with this. And I do have some really interesting uh, interviews by women, uh, but I'd have to fill this in the best I could. So in the introduction, I have one, uh, one part where I have a note on Sri Vaishnava women, where I do the historical overview so people at least know when when I talk about inclusiveness in the religion, that inclusiveness uh, included women, although we always had the problem of rhetoric and, and reality. Um, so I went from, from uh, that. And then I notice in my interviews, sometimes their wives were present. Okay, but I was usually moved from man to man. Uh, I call myself the honorary man in this research, and this, this often happens with women researchers. So, you know, and the women are are sort of away, and I cannot break out of the interview to go say, "Hey, where's your wife? I'd really like to talk to her." Uh, sometimes after the interview, I try to do that. But the male public world in Sri Vaishnavism and non brahman Sri Vaishnavism is still a man's world, okay? So, uh, largely a man's world. So, I was sent, as I said, into the creamy layer of contacts, and I was sent into the male leaders of the communities in those different castes. And that just, uh, you know... One reference, and then somebody would say, well, why don't we go meet my brothers in the village? So we go off and do a village trip, and there would be the brothers. And that's the way the network uh, expanded. But on reflection, once I had all the interviews in front of me, uh, and because I did meet uh, women as well, I began to see how often... Uh, these leaders talked about their wives, who were professional women. They were nurses, they were teachers, lawyers, doctors. Uh, I was quite—it struck me how how often uh, this came up, and how proud they were of of women. Uh, so that gave me. One insight about, especially for their uh, interest in their daughters, and they were becoming engineers and, and so forth. So some of this was dreams of a better future, I think. Some of it was the fact that these families really, you know, now had a had a base, uh, an economic base, and were were able to continue that. Where I found more pockets of conservatism was as, re, as uh, men re, re, remembered their 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 parents or their grandparents. and remember that takes me back into the uh, into the colonial period. They often talked about how staunch the women were, how pious and how staunch. <laughs> so this word staunch uh, really takes you back to the fact that there is this, Brahmanical aspect to Sri Vaishnavism, and a lot of the norms uh, of uh, and for womenhood, uh, or for women, uh, are were Brahmanical. And as non brahmins became Sri Vaishnavism, especially if they were initiated, uh, which means uh, becoming non, non-vegetarian, becoming... Uh, uh, more pious, doing more chanting, longer pujas, uh, or they were adopting these elite brahmanical norms. And I saw that especially in the older period. Now I think a lot of that is gone. We've moved into a kind of a professional uh, context and a modern context. But I have to admit that I started to interview mainly older people because I realized if I didn't catch their stories, this history was going to be gone forever. That reached back into um, the early 20th century. And therefore, I don't have so many interviews with young Sri Vaishnavas, where I think you might find the value system uh, really quite different. So (laughs) that's a really interesting topic. The other one I would mention is I think there's a lot of interesting material in this book on the colonial period. As people talked about their grandparents, I would begin to catch some names of, of Don Brahmins who seemed to be significant figures. And uh, this took me back, as I tried to trace who these people were, uh, to seven key figures uh, in the, from the late 19th century sort of up to the time of of independence. And it gives us another story uh, to figures such as Aramukha Navalar uh, on the Shaiva side of non brahmins who who had to struggle so hard to become learned in the Sri Vaishnava tradition and Sri Vaishnava leaders. So how did they do that? They started off as orators and poets, then because they were t- some of them uh, were Telugu speaking, the Telugu mutts or monasteries, Brahmin ones, took them in to learn Sanskrit. So finally, you needed the Sanskrit along with the Tamil to have the linguistic competency to study the scriptures and the commentaries and the text, the intellectual side of the tradition. So they got that learning and then they began to write books. And once they got into print, that started to open up Sri Bhaisa non-Brahmin publishing and then cheap books and then and they do more and more books to make uh, Sanskrit texts and the mix of Sanskrit and Tamil or Manipravala Prabala texts. Uh, to translate them, so to speak, into easy Tamil, to therefore make the religion more and more accessible. And in the process, they became the teachers for doing this. Uh, and they, they loved the word discourses. They were always out sort of teaching and preaching, uh, but through discourses. And they began to challenge the Acharya Brahmin roles uh, for this, Except that they were kept on the sidelines, but they began to, to do many of the same things, including initiating uh, people. Uh, and this initiation was sort of key to salvation. The Acharya would guide you uh, to salvation, and initiation was, was key to that. Now, the non Brahmin uh, leaders, uh, once they had this learning, began to preach, and they preached with Dalits, they preached out in the villages, they brought a number of people into the community, who then wanted initiation. But to get initiation, uh, they had to go to the Brahmin Acharya, and they did not really want to do it. Okay, especially with the Dalits, uh, purity, impurity. So they asked the non brahmins to do the initiation. And uh, so I say that they they took on this role of initiation by default, not design. But once they realized that they were the ones doing initiation, then they began to claim that any non-Brahmin, any Sri Vaishnava, no matter what the caste, no matter what uh, the gender, and they included women in this, should be uh, Acharya's. If they had the requisite knowledge competence, so that was quite a radical m- movement, and I've traced it through you know two or three figures in the colonial uh, period. I think that's died out today. I don't see non-Brahmins. Some of them say, "Look, we don't want initiation. <laughs> we're non-veg. You know, it's a, we're just not interested in in imitating Brahmanical." Uh, behavior or mauris and orthodoxy at this point. Um, so they choose uh, in some ways what they want out of Sri Vaishnavism, which are the Tamil hymns and the inclusiveness and so forth, but they stay away from, uh, from the orthodoxies. Others, I found, were very proud of being having those grammatical uh, uh, traditions as well. So' it's, it's kind of a, a mixed a mixed approach at this point. but, but the colonial period I th- that I think is, is, is really interesting.
1: Fascinating. So before we close, why don't you tell us uh, what you're working on now?
0: Well, I've just finished another book. And that is, I'm looking at, it's another book on Sri Vaishnavism. I had to leave my field of Sri Vaishnavism for a while in my career. So I have boxes and boxes of unfinished research books to be written. And that's what's happening now. So this last uh, one is uh, is this really, a, it's on the topic of, of canon on scripture. Uh, because of the uh, Sri Vaishnava ca- canon being the, Tamil hymns of the alvars the seventh to ninth century poet saints from the many different castes, and there's a major story in the tradition that Natamuni, who was the first of the Brahmanacharyas, usually assigned to the ninth or tenth century, was the one who collected all of these, uh, all of these uh, uh, poems, these hymns, and this formed what we call the Divya Prabandham of 4,000 verses, which is the scripture. Well, there's a lot of complications to this story. And I had to go back because I always suspected uh, that these stories uh, uh, were much later. The hagiographies about these figures, the collection of the hymns was much later. So I went back and I went through every single thinker in the tradition uh, to figure out, you know, did what's the image of this Natamuni? Did he collect these? He's often c- called a, a, a musical expert. Where does that come in? So I took all the different components of the story, and in the process, I had to—I came out redating almost every text in that tradition. I went right up to the 19th century. So it was a huge, hardest thing I've ever done, I think. I mean, we all say every project's the hardest ever, but <laughs> this this one really, really was the hardest ever. And it'll be very controversial. But, you know, if you're dealing within a Sampradaya history, we know about the the nature of, of designing histories uh, and uh, the controversies over that. So this is a... This is an academic approach that I use both the, the text and inscriptions uh, and search for the themes. And I found out it's just not just the 4,000 hymns. Sometimes it's only Nama uh, Varskira that's the scripture. That was actually the first one. And then I find sometimes it's Ramanaja who restores uh, or gathers the, the material. Sometimes it's Vedanta Deshika. So I bring together all these different versions of the story. So it's not the Divya Prabandham, the Tamil Veda and uh, Tangled Tales. That's that one.
1: So a couple of things come to mind randomly. One, um, (laughs) books are births, complete with labor, for sure. Um, uh, uh, Two, uh, I was talking to another uh, professor Emeritus the other day. It seems that retirement is among the most productive periods of one's life (laughs) as a professor, (laughs) because there's apparently more time for writing.
0: (laughs) You know, so thank God for retirement. Thank God for health and retirement, because... And every time I look, I still have a lot of boxes, and it bothers me. I'm at the point every day where I say, Catherine, give up. Just one or two more, but just get rid of those boxes. Um, you know, I think people don't realize how busy professors' lives are. You know, I had 25 graduate students over the years. That's huge. And I had to, it was still a time where you were often five courses per term you have tried to keep your you know, your research projects and your grants going and your travel. And, and really you get to a certain point and then something else and you're on. Okay. And it gets into its box. So I, one of the good things at the moment is that I'm at the university of Victoria. There's a really good center for the study of religion and society. Uh, and it has a number of retired professors. So it's a mix of graduate students, visiting students, uh, uh, UVic profs from different disciplines, and we retired folks. And it's very good because it keeps just enough of the academic uh, encounter alive, and you can present your stuff and get the feedback. uh, And then go back to your office and write. And that's just the perfect combination in my mind.
1: (laughs) One comes full circle from, from, from dissertating to to writing in retirement with a bunch of experiences and skills uh, amassed in between. Uh, You'll have to return to the podcast. um, uh, When your next book is published, it probably won't be too, too long. Probably next year, I imagine.
0: Let's see what the reviewers say there.
1: For sure, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you for appearing today. Well, thank you, Raj. For those of you listening, um, once again, we've been speaking with Dr. Catherine um, Young, who's Professor Emerita at um, the School of Religious Studies at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Uh, We've been speaking about her brand new, uh, fascinating, truly groundbreaking work, Turbulent Transformations. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep well, keep listening and keep contemplating the intersection of religion and society and politics in Tamil Nadu and beyond. Take care.